Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. Existential threat has become the cliche designation in today's world for just about any undesirable development. It is trotted out regularly to describe things as varied as the national debt, the opioid epidemic, terrorism, white nationalism, culture war, or even the Trump presidency. While all of these pose challenges to the nation and the world, one would only with difficulty make the case that any pose real challenge to our very existence to justify this existential adjective. Climate change, however, is different. It does truly deserve the designation existential threat because over time, and probably not a very long time, the heating of the planet brought about by carbon emissions will bring about devastating changes that pose a threat to humanity's very existence. As numerous studies in the United Nations and other reputable authorities have now documented, the CO2 from the burning of fossil fuels that has accumulated in the atmosphere since the onset of the Industrial Revolution will bring about, in just a few decades, dramatic temperature rise, a rise in sea level with associated flooding of coastal areas, catastrophic weather events, drought, forest fires, species extinction, and the displacement of millions of people, and the potential associated violence. Just yesterday, the global climate assessment found that CO2 levels in the atmosphere are now at the highest level ever, and the rate of increase is such that uh, these uh, devastating effects that I've described are likely in our future, unless something dramatic is done. The magnitude of this existential threat certainly ought to call forth a bold response to forestall it as much as possible and mitigate its effects. Recently, climate change activists have formulated such a bold response, a Green New Deal, intended to mobilize Americans to end our dependence on fossil fuels, build an economy based on renewable energy, and along the way create a more just society. Earlier this year, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York and Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts introduced a resolution setting out goals for such a Green New Deal. While the resolution has little prospect of passage in the currently polarized Congress, it has placed the idea of a Green New Deal on the public agenda. On today's podcast, I have with me my colleague, Professor Thea Riofrancos, who along with three co-authors has just published a new book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. This book makes a clear and thorough case for a Green New Deal and describes what it would mean for our future. I've asked Thea to share with us the case they make in the book with us today. A few words about Professor Rio Francos. She joined the political science faculty in 2015 after earning her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2014. Thea is a specialist in Latin American politics and has conducted research on the politics of resource extraction and its environmental effects. Her book, Resource Radicals from Petronationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador, will be published by Duke University Press early in 2020. At PC, Thea teaches courses on Latin American politics, democratic theory, the politics of oil, and political science methods. Each spring, she also leads a delegation of students to Washington, D.C. for the Model OES, where our student delegation represents a Latin American country. Thea also publishes frequently in journalistic venues such as Dissent, N Plus One Magazine, Jacobin Magazine, The Guardian, and In These Times. Thea, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Thea, t- to start us off, can you tell us something about the genesis of this book and tell us something about your co-authors and their backgrounds and, and how you work together to develop the book? Sure. Um, So this book was very much inspired by exactly the set of circumstances that you laid out 
at the end of your introductory monologue. All of us have worked on climate, environmental issues, social movements, um, both as academics, reporters, and participants for a long time. And we've also frequently been disappointed by climate policy and the debate over climate change in the United States particularly. So for that reason, we we're all very inspired um, when the Green New Deal entered the sort of public conversation with Ocasio-Cortez's inauguration, her participation in a Sunrise Movement's occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office, demanding a Green New Deal and a jobs guarantee, and then her work with Markey in terms of introducing the resolution um, and really just bringing it around the country and, and going on speaking tours and, and doing lots of public events around it. So that was the kind of context in which we were inspired to write this book. It seemed that for the first time there was a climate policy that both was actually realistic in terms of the climate science and also had some possibility of garnering kind of mass public support, which is something that we can't say, we can't really say either of those things about any previous climate policy in the United States. So we were very inspired, excited um, by this moment, really excited especially to see so much youth activism around climate starting to gain momentum. Um, and so it was there that we thought it was very important to have a kind of coherent defense of the Green New Deal as the policy paradigm to address the climate crisis. So some of it came from this positive inspiration. And then there was kind of a negative reason, which is that immediately after AOC and Markey introduced the resolution, they got a lot of pushback. And not only from the usual suspects of the fossil fuel industry and their political allies, but also from the Democratic establishment. Um, Pelosi, Feinstein, and others kind of derided it as a silly. Calls the, uh, the green whatever. Yeah, exactly. The green dream. The green dream, dream or green whatever. Yeah, whatever. exactly. <laughs> which we, 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 we kind of repurposed that statement uh, in the book. But, um, but so there was pushback from, from Democratic representatives um, and others in the sort of broad political establishment. And so we both were inspired by the idea of a Green New Deal and the movement that was already taking it on. Um, and we were also um, disappointed, to put it mildly, with the response of the political establishment. So we thought it was a very good moment to have a kind of clear, strong, coherent defense of the Green New Deal, but also to kind of open up what would a Green New Deal look like, right? Um, how would it transform our society? What are the immediate tasks that it would need to take on? There's a lot of talk about a Green New Deal and buzz about it and then criticism of it, but not a lot yet at that moment, um, uh, kind of concrete policy proposals. So we, we saw an opening and we took it and we wrote the book extremely quickly. I think Verso said that it's like one of the fastest books that they've ever published before from writing through production. So um, that was an, uh, a result of the collaborative effort that you kind of alluded to at the end of your question in terms of our writing process. You should acknowledge your three co-authors. Yes, I'll acknowledge so. them right now. Um, Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, and Daniel Aldana-Cohen. Three of us, Alyssa, Daniel, and I, are academics, though we also all have been activists and done reporting and sort of other type of work in our life, but we are, we are currently academics. And then um, Kate Aronoff is a climate reporter, primarily on climate. She also has reported on other things, but she reports a lot on climate and on the fossil fuel industry. And so we were friends, and we've talked about these ideas for a long time and talked about the climate policies, the climate movement, environmental uh, issues, and so we sort of already had a relationship and got the idea for writing a book. And, and actually, I'll just say a little bit about where that idea came from very briefly. I've sort of given you the broad political context of it. But more specifically, we our first move with, when the Green New Deal was kind of announced as a resolution was we need to start a series at Jacobin Magazine, which is a kind of widely read left media outlet, really. It has a magazine, a website, and other venues. But we decided we need to have kind of a series on the Green New Deal and solicit pieces from authors who are involved in the climate movement, um, who have done environmental work, who have worked on the just transition and all sorts of things to kind of have weekly articles like what would a green new deal look like what are the obstacles what are the opportunities all that sort of stuff so we started running the series and then had the idea of a book initially the book was going to be a kind of an edited compilation of those contributions but verso said we'd actually prefer you four just write a book together and so that's the kind of like actual genesis of this project well great that's great background you certainly produced a very readable an interesting book packed full of lots of information. I learned a lot uh, when I read through it. So to, to get our conversation g going here, could you give us sort of the brief, uh, I guess, 30-second uh, uh, 
summary of what is the Green New Deal? Yeah, so what makes the Green New Deal unique, I already started to allude to it um, uh, earlier in my comments. So I had said previously that it's the only climate policy that really addresses the scale of the climate crisis and addresses the scale of it as defined by climate science, and also simultaneously um, is a politically winnable project. And, and I'll say those are kind of two ways that I would think about it. But to kind of define the Green New Deal and what's unique about it is the way that it links climate and inequality. So the, the climate crisis we know is like a multifaceted, accelerating, already killing people and, and forcing people to migrate around the world. Um, and no other climate policy has really, you know, previous climate policy previous to the Green New Deal has really addressed the climate crisis at the scale of the crisis and in all of its facets. So that's one thing that the Green New Deal does. It recognizes that we need aggressive, urgent, and comprehensive decarbonization, meaning we need to get our economy off of fossil fuels and all of the ways that fossil fuels are you know, imbricated in our economy, we need to get off of fossil fuels. And, and a lot of discussions of solutions for climate change kind of stop there, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Things like the, uh, a carbon tax. Right. Well, they, they actually don't even get that far in a sense because it, it a carbon tax on its own, as we argue, well, is... Define. A carbon tax is essentially a tax on the amount of CO2 that's produced in any product. Exactly, right? exactly. And so, so that, and that could be a tax that would be imposed upon automobiles, on... Everything we consume on, has every, carbon emissions. Right. So there just be a, carbon emissions, and, yeah. And the, and the idea behind it is that if you impose a tax, this is sort of Economics 101, that will induce people to use less of the thing tax. Right. So we, so I, let me actually zoom back out to the Green New Deal, and I'll come back to the carbon tax in a moment. Yes, the carbon tax is one way to deal with emissions, but we would argue that it's not enough. And I can, I'll come back to that in a second. But for various reasons, no other climate policy, whether a carbon tax, cap and trade, um, just regulating emissions, whatever previous policy approaches have been, actually address how deep this crisis is and how dangerous climate change is. So one thing the Green New Deal is like aggressive decarbonization. We need to like rapidly and comprehensively get our economy to not operate on the thing that it's operated on for hundreds of years, which is fossil fuels. So that's one piece of the Green New Deal. The other piece of the Green New Deal is that we need a more egalitarian society. We need a more just society, as you put it. And so what the Green New Deal does is combine a very rapid, aggressive climate change suite of climate change policies with a suite of social policies that address the crisis of inequality in the United States. And this might seem, and this is where some of the pushback from the Democratic establishment came up, this might seem like, why are you putting these two unconnected things together? One is the climate crisis. The other is the crisis of inequality, of homelessness, of people not having health care, transit, access, good jobs. We could go on. And it turns out that they are not unconnected, actually. And so what the Green New Deal does is actually reveal that climate and society are interconnected. Right? And so the same society that produces a crisis of inequality is the same society that produces a climate crisis. And those facts are not unrelated. So just to kind of put it in a little bit of perspective, um, the, the wealthiest people in the world and the wealthiest people in the US, um, the wealthiest countries in the world, whether you want to look at individuals, classes, or country, you know, country level data, produce the most emissions because they have the most carbon intensive lifestyles. They have the most affluence, which can buy not only cars, but when we're talking about the top 1%, jet planes and all sorts of you know very conspicuous forms of consumption that involve a lot of carbon. Um, whereas the poorest people in the US, in the world, and the poorest countries in the world, um, both contribute the least to the climate crisis, but also are the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. So what that tells us is, first of all, that the climate crisis is structured by inequality. Those responsible for it are the most affluent. Those who are vulnerable to it are the least well off. But it also tells us something deeper, which is that the more unequal your society is, the more environmentally destructive it is. The more you have a class of people who have endless income, can do whatever they want with it, and also have a distorting effect on our political system, promoting deregulation and all sorts of other kind of neoliberal policies, you have a situation of runaway climate change because there's no one to check their consumption and no political system to prevent it from happening. And, so, and a, and a certain segment of that elite also derive their incomes from fossil fuels. Right. And so if you and look so at... And exactly. so they're politically... Mo they're prone to political mobilization to 
to defy any kind of attempt to reduce fossil fuel consumption. Exactly. Right? And and if you look at it not as in individuals or classes or countries, but actually look at it as companies, there are set of, I don't know if it's 70 companies in the world, I forget off the top of my head, that are responsible for like the vast majority of emissions. And most of them are fossil fuel companies, though there are other companies whose, whose activities are very carbon intensive. So however you look at it, inequality and climate are deeply connected to one another. And you actually can't confront the depth of the climate crisis without deeply reorganizing our society to both be lower carbon and also to be more equal. And those are interconnected projects. And the last thing I'll say on this is those are all empirical reasons um, that I support the Green New Deal. And I think that the Green New Deal makes sense as a policy paradigm. But there's also a political reason that it makes sense, which is there's no way we're going to pass the types of policies we need to pass in democratic contexts without mass support. And you need mass support in terms of you know, voter preferences. You need it in terms of um, contentious politics and mass movements. You need it in all of the ways that we can express our, our political support in the United States. And if the average person feels like not only will they not benefit from climate policies, but they might lose significantly from them because, as you said, like a carbon tax might tax all of us equally or something, um, then you're not going to have political support. And worse than that, you're going to have backlash against it. And we saw this with the Yellow Vest movements in France. And recently, a number of countries in the world have erupted in protest um, against fuel subsidies being revoked, subsidies to ordinary people to, to make gasoline cheaper. And so when you do things like that, even in some cases where the motivations are environmental, you trigger a backlash of ordinary people against climate policies. So we need climate policies that benefit ordinary people and that target the most well-off and the corporations that are most responsible for the and, problem. And, and, and also the, the, those people who argue against action uh, to address climate change uh, often make the argument that uh, these things can't be done because we need fossil fuels for, uh, for, for material prosperity, that attempts to address climate change are simply going to require ratcheting down the standard of living of everyone. And, and it seems to me one of the insights of the Green New Deal policy is that it says, uh, in fact, the quality of life of people can be improved uh, if we, in fact, take these actions to reduce carbon. Right. That it's not a, a zero-sum kind of trade-off where uh, the only way we get reduced carbon is for people to live miserable lives. Right. You know, no more hamburgers or... Right. You know, no more jet plane flights, right? Yeah. And it seems to me that what you have done in this in this book, in the Green New Deal project, uh, in in general, is to say, no, we can do this in a way that, in fact, will improve the the quality of of everyone's life, and it isn't going to make everybody you know, miserable uh, in order to address the right. climate change. Right, which is also to say that um, most people's lives in the United States right now are already pretty difficult. I mean, to put it mildly, like most people don't have private jet planes or, or even consume enough necessarily to be the primary culprits behind well, climate change. Right. Well, and I mean, right. it's it's amazing, you know, as an academic and, and I guess a relatively privileged person um, in the scheme of things, um, I fly with some frequency to conferences, for example. I try, I'm trying to do it less and less. But one sort of thing, if you fly, you kind of think everyone flies. But it turns out that flying is extremely structured by inequality. And most people do not fly because they cannot afford to fly. Um, and so, you know, when you actually look at where the source of the most emissions are, there's a lot that can be accomplished by just reducing the overconsumption of the most affluent, which is not to say that ordinary people's consumption habits won't need to change. They will. Like, we need more people in mass transit and not driving cars. But we also need to give people real options. You can't just say, take mass transit if you're, you know, you live in Providence and the bus system is a broken system. I mean, it doesn't get most people to work. Um, so you need to actually build up alternative means of transportation, of housing, um, and actually have people have real options um, to not live such carbon-intensive um, lifestyles. Yeah, I want to get into some of those details in a minute, but one thing that has intrigued me about uh, the Green New Deal is the New Deal part, uh, that there's obviously a, a reference to the historic New Deal of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that important? Well, it's interesting because when the Green New Deal was first coined as a term, which was not by AOC, but I think 
We we date it to a, a Thomas Friedman column of Thomas all Friedman people. Claims to have. Claims to have. It might it might have some you know there might be other other strands to the genealogy, but you know however it came about as a term. When I first encountered it, I was a little bit skeptical for a couple of reasons. I thought, well, is the New Deal. No, I think the New Deal did a lot of amazing things. That goes without saying. But I wasn't sure how like resonant or salient it was to especially young people in the U.S. now who have actually lived under conditions of neoliberal austerity their whole lives and don't know of it's hard to maybe think of the idea of government taking action for social welfare. Um, so I wasn't sure it would resonate. And then there's some other issues which we discussed briefly in the book and, and we don't need to discuss at length here, but there are ways in which the New Deal was... Um, there were some negative aspects to the New Deal, right? So the New Deal was forged in part through, politically forged or made possible in part through um, a compromise with Southern Democrats who um, limited a lot of its like racial justice kind of implications. And it, for, for and- example, uh, Social Security originally didn't provide benefits to domestic workers or agricultural right, workers. Right, And that was exactly how most black people in the South made mm-hmm. their living. So exactly. in fact, Social Security was not uh, available right. to um, many African Americans. Right. And it took a long time before those groups were in fact uh, allowed to get social security benefits. Right. And other, you know, other kind of massive federal investments that came out of the New Deal legacy and, and after it also in many ways reinscribed racial segregation and, and, and other kind of hierarchies. So and we're thinking about this building of the suburbs and the and the federal highways. And so we don't, you know, we want we looked back on some of these as positive examples of government action, but we don't want to replicate the negative elements of them, of course. So, um, but but just to go back to what I was saying, like I, I initially was skeptical for the reasons I said, but I came around to it as soon as I realized that it actually sounded good. Like as a framing, as a term, it resonated. 17-year-olds who maybe didn't even know what the New Deal was yet, they hadn't necessarily learned about it in, in, in high school or like, you know, been aware of it. Just like the phrase Green New Deal, like there's a reason that the New Deal was called the New Deal. It sounds good. We, in the midst of a crisis, we need to actually rewrite our social contract, right? That's what the New Deal is. And the Green New Deal is another moment in the midst of two intersecting crises of, of inequality and of climate change. Um, and it is another opportunity to rewrite our social contract. And I think that the, the framing really works. And it, it in, in its historical kind of metaphor, it invokes, as I said, massive public investment oriented towards the public good. But it's also quite forward looking in terms of kind of building a new, a new society. Yeah, well, in the book, actually, you go to great lengths to connect the Green New Deal to the 1930s and 40s. You you talk about Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms yeah. uh, and yeah. his uh, Economic Bill of Rights right. in 1944. And the job creation programs. We are we are right. really interested in what the WPA did and and some of the things that that were done and not with this intention, but for example, the massive funding of the arts and of theater and on all of these really interesting jobs programs that were inaugurated as part of the the New Deal um, are actually very relevant today, not just because we have a lot of out of work artists and freelancers, but also because those types of activities, which we refer to as as kind of public luxury and public leisure, like things like you know being able to visit a museum or a theater or a park or recreation and a lot of amazing investments under the New Deal and public rec- creation are low carbon activities like they're good for the environment in fact you know rather than driving to a shopping mall and buying things that were produced in a sweatshop far away and were transported by container ship that's such a carbon intensive set of activities but it's like the only kind of leisure activity that our society offers people instead of that like taking you know a bike ride to a park or taking a train um, to a museum and and hanging out with friends is actually a really low carbon way and very enjoyable way it turns out to spend time but but it was the New Deal that actually kind of had the idea of like, let's actually put artists to work and also like make society more beautiful and make parks um, more available. And that's the type of really creative ideas that, that we love about the New Deal and, and think are relevant today. Yeah. The, you also in the book talk about the faux New Deal, the faux Green New Deal. Yes. Uh, what's, what's that faux Green New Deal and how is the 
the real Green New Deal different. Right. So part of what, and this kind of maybe we could actually talk a little bit about the carbon tax here, because that might be a useful a useful moment. This might be a useful moment for it. But by the faux Green New Deal, F-A-U-X, so fake Green New Deal, what we mean are climate policies, some of which might use the language of the Green New Deal because it's become a popular kind of framing. Um, right now, the, the European Union is inaugurating a Green Deal. They took out the new part. Um, so, But anyway, there are a lot of policy frameworks proliferating around the world to deal with the the climate crisis. And and in the U.S. specifically, we're concerned about climate policies that might borrow some of the language of the Green New Deal, but are not radical enough to deal with the problem. And what we argue in the introduction to the book is that the only effective Green New Deal, effective meaning pragmatically realistic, going to actually address the problem and also garner political support, is a radical Green New Deal, which sounds counterintuitive because in the U.S. particularly, I think we're used to thinking of pragmatism or effectiveness as like the opposite of radicalism. Um, but what we mean by radical is not like fringe ideas or marginal ideas, but rather, you know, the root of the Latin root of the word radical is the root, literally root, sorry to be redundant, but, you know, getting at the root of things. So radical critiques or radical ideas are ideas that get at some structural aspect of society. And so we think that in order to solve the climate crisis, we need to actually get at the root of the crisis, what's causing it, and address it at the scale that it demands. And we're concerned about climate policies that kind of fiddle around the edges because the climate crisis is already deadly. It's already forcing people to move. It's already, you know, having just really negative effects on humans and ecosystems. Um, and so we need a set of policies that actually addresses that. And something like a standalone carbon tax cannot do that. And I'll just briefly talk about why, just because it's a, it's a popular policy, especially among sort of the political establishment. Um, and what a carbon tax does, as, as Professor Hudson already laid out, is tax um, goods and services and economic activities based on how much carbon producing them emits. Um, and this is, is fine, and we don't reject it. We think a carbon tax is actually important um, uh, among many policies, but it won't work on its own um, for several reasons. One is that if you read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC's reports, this is the UN body that has produced these huge recent reports on, on the, the scale of the climate crisis, they say that in order for carbon tax to effectively incentivize like a switch to renewable energy or not extracting all these fossil fuels, it would need to be extremely high, like thousands of dollars a metric, you know, whatever unit of carbon it is, I forget right now, but very high carbon tax. Like what's being proposed now in the U.S. is on the order of 40 or $50. Like there's no way that that, that amount of that, that fee or fine would actually change behavior enough to uh, keep fossil fuels in the ground where they belong. And, it, an, and an effective tax at that level would really harm lower income people, correct? Right. I mean, it would. The people who are, are living paycheck to paycheck, you know, cannot afford to pay that, that kind of a tax. It, it, and therefore, they're not likely to be very supportive of such a thing. It also would be like, if you're going to have a carbon tax that's that high, you might as well just pass a law that requires all fossil fuels to stay in the ground because it's going to be as hard a political battle. I mean, it, it's not, it, like I think part of the idea behind a carbon tax is it's like get bipartisan support, but at the level that it would need to be to actually have a, an effect on on emissions, it would be so high that no Republican would support it. And many mainstream Democrats, you know, would be wary of it, too. So we think it's more effective to think on both what we call the demand or what and, and what other policy um, um, thinkers on this call the demand side and the supply side. So the the demand side is the carbon tax. It's just thinking about pricing mechanisms to kind of change behavior. So if we make things with a lot of emissions more expensive, people won't buy them as much. That's the demand side. And we think that's important, but it's not sufficient for the reasons that we just laid out. What we also need is to work with the supply side. And in the case of fossil fuels, we literally mean the supply of fossil fuels, like literally the coal and gas and oil that's underneath our feet. And in order to prevent those from being extracted, and the climate science says that like 70 or 80% of existing fossil fuels that are underground need to stay there in order for us to 
um, uh, have a livable, safe climate. Um, in order to do that, we just need outright bans, like, you know, for example, Sanders and Warren, and I'm not sure if others uh, in the Democratic primaries have promoted a ban on fracking or ban on exploration for oil and on public lands. We need just like outright bans. Um, this stuff cannot come out of the ground. There, there's no, and you know, thinking about what price to put on carbon is sort of like thinking about like how expensive should we make murder? It's like, no, 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 it's just illegal. Like you can't do it because it's literally killing people, climate change. So so we think, and, and other policy kind of experts have, have made this point too, that there's been very little focus on these supply side policies, obviously because they directly limit the ac economic activity of fossil fuel companies who have had a huge influence in in, in uh, climate policy. So that's one reason they haven't been attended to, but they are a more direct way to actually keep um, fossil fuels in the ground than changing their prices, even though we do agree that it, a, a carbon tax of some sort is, is probably important. Right. And you need, the other part of the supply side approach is that you need to build up renewables to replace uh, right. those fossil fuels yeah. to to you know, obviate the argument that uh, well, you know, standard of livings have to you know plummet right. uh, because we don't have uh, sufficient energy, right. and 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 also uh, you know critics are, are going to say well we we need these fossil fuels we can't transition and and, and in order to to one of the arguments of the tar carbon tax opponents is that they they somehow think that the market will work in providing incentives to produce more renewables, uh, but, but that, that might not occur very quickly. Right. And if you're really going to get people to use less fossil fuels or keep those fossil fuels in the ground, you have to build up those alternatives. Exactly. And that means positive public investment. You can't do it with tax policy alone. Yeah, we, what we've seen over the past few years is we have seen impressive growth in renewables, but the problem, and we've seen declining prices, which is important as well in terms of making it economically feasible and, and being able to swap out our energy sources, but unfortunately, we've seen growth in renewables, but not decline in fossil fuel, and especially gas, um, fracked gas, has been, you know, flooded the U.S. market, and, and fracked um, um, oil is also flooding the global market. The U.S. is now, for the first time, exporting more oil than it imports, right? So we've had a major fracking boom, which has occurred uh, under presidents of both sides of the aisle. Um, and that's produced like a glut of pretty inexpensive fossil fuels. And so renewables are starting to be able to compete on price in a lot of markets, which is great in the U.S., um, in a lot of state-level markets. But they're just adding to the overall energy mix without regulation and public investment to s massively scale up renewables and also to make um, fossil fuels illegal or too expensive to to extract, we're not going to have this massive shift in, in in energy consumption that we need. So we need to get, uh, we need we need exactly the power of a public investment, public procurement, and also re regulation and enforcement to to generate the switch. Market signals maybe they would have worked 30 years ago. Perhaps, but right now the crisis is too dramatic, and the degree to which we need to transform our energy system quickly um, is just too too much of a task for for market incentives alone. And that requires this political mo mobilization. So that that gets to the radicalism you were talking about, right? You've got to get political uh, people mobilized behind the kinds of investments that are going to be needed to transform the system. Right. And, and these are going to be massive. I mean, if you think about sort of the, the structure, the infrastructure that supports the current fossil fuel economy. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's massive. Uh, pipelines uh, all over the, all the, the, the country, power plants. The uh, entire logistics of trade in oil. Oil is the most traded good right. on the global economy, so all of our ports are full of oil, container ships oil of oil. tankers and, exactly. and all of that. And you really have to substitute something comparable for renewables, mm -hmm. which, which, which is a, a big effort uh, in, in its own. Uh, let's talk about that. Uh, uh, there was one of your chapters uh, begins with the discussion of, uh, of a guy named Roland Wank that I never heard of, uh, who was the TVA, TVA architect, the Tennessee Valley Authority architect. It had never occurred to me that the Tennessee Valley Authority would need an official architect. But if you think about it, 
it makes sense. The TVA built a lot of dams, right? right? And dams need architects. Right. And, like any, and the public impression of those dams and this, you know, the sort of like um, presentation of this massive public investment was important to New Deal era policymakers. So it was both because, of course, they need to be designed, but there was also an effort to make them beautiful and monumental looking and sort of display to people concretely the investment for public welfare that the government was involved in. Right. And then, and this guy Wank also built public housing. Exactly. exactly. Uh, some of it for people who were displaced by the, the, the dams. Yes. Uh, and, but also uh, workers who mm-hmm. worked on building the dams and the like. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought that was a brilliant way to introduce this chapter, which is about the architecture uh, that is going to be necessary uh, in order to uh, transform to renewable energy, right. uh, like grids and stuff. You want to say a little yeah, more about and, that? And so in this chapter, what we focus on is what um, is a jargony term, but I'll introduce it, which is called the built environment. And what the built environment refers to is kind of exactly what it sounds like, which is that all of the infrastructure, buildings, and means of transportation um, through which and in which we live our lives, right? So it's everything from our homes um, to how we get from point A to point B to office buildings um, and to the infrastructure of energy, distribution, and transmission and generation, right? So all of this is what we can refer to very broadly as the built environment. And it turns out, as Professor Hudson has noted a couple of times, that the current way that we organize the spaces that we live in, how we do our shopping, how we get to work, um, where our energy comes from, where our leisure time takes place, the current way that we organize all of these things in a literal material sense produces a lot of carbon emissions. Why? Because many Americans live in sprawling suburbs. That requires them to drive to work, requires them to drive for leisure. Many Americans with their leisure time engage in carbon intensive activities such as shopping. And then the the grid was is the energy grid is designed for um, for primarily for fossil fuel energy, right? Not for the, the way that we might need to redesign it to, to use, to generate and to distribute renewable energy. Right. It just, it just occurs to me, for the last several weeks, my neighborhood has been dug up by National Grid, which is the local energy company, which is replacing all the, the gas lines under the, under, the, uh, under the street and the lines coming into, into houses. Right. And you think about that, there's a, and it, it's very expensive. Uh, and the the immediate practical need is that the lines that were there are old and prone to leaking. Mm-hmm. And so they're supposedly upgrading them. Right. But from a Green New Deal perspective, that's really a bad move, right? Bad move. And, you know, uh, don't get me started on National Grid, which you're nice to call a local company because it's a, it's it's a local, multinational shareholder-owned firm that's um, based in the U.K. and was actually privatized, the U.K.'s privatized National Grid, hence the name national grid, but there are big investors in energy markets and in um, uh, utility markets in in the northeast of the United States. But yeah, no, they're terrible offenders in terms of their infrastructure, not just that they're negligent about repairing it, but also that, and this gets, you know, to the point of the book, also that they're they're just continually building more and more infrastructure that kind of embeds us in this fossil fuel energy system, right? And, or links us to this fossil fuel energy system instead of doing what they should be doing, which is investing in uh, the infrastructure of transmission and distribution of renewable energy. Um, so that's a problem with National Grid and many other privately owned utilities in the United States. Um, but, but as I was saying, like the entire kind of world that we live in is designed to use lots of oil and gas um, um, in order to get us from point A to point B, in order to heat our homes, as you're noting right now, to cook our food, everything. So everything needs to change. Um, and that can be scary or it can be inspiring. And we choose the, the latter approach to it. And the reason it's inspiring is the following. One is that... Um, the way that our our suburbs and cities um, and and exurbs and all the places that we live in in the U.S. are currently designed is that they are highly segregated by class and race, um, and they also, as I've said, require a lot of carbon for us to get around and to live in. Um, and all of those are bad. Carbon creates local carbon emissions create local pollutions. Race and class segregation is terrible for people's life chances and and outcomes in all sorts of ways. And so there's a lot that is wrong with our current built environment, that the climate crisis gives us an opportunity to actually dramatically transform. 
Um, and this might seem daunting, but I think it's important to keep in mind that our current suburban um, highway kind of built environment is recent. I mean, it, it's it's not yesterday, but it's it's within a couple of generations. It involved itself massive investments on the part of the federal government um, in order to create it in the first place. So these are things that were made by humans and that can be unmade or remade, right? Um, nothing is permanent. And anyway, our infrastructure in the U.S., the, including the highways and, and the other the other things that I just mentioned, is, is in terrible shape, right? So we either need to repair our infrastructure or and or replace it with a different type of infrastructure. And so we argue that this is an amazing opportunity to actually create denser and more affordable and less segregated built environments that are pleasurable and beautiful to live in. Um, and that this has the side benefit of also creating a lot of jobs that would hopefully be unionized and dignified and well-paying but a lot needs to be done because every aspect of our of our built environment is involved in producing emissions and a lot of them come from buildings and transportation so rebuilding there have been there have yeah. been a lot of guys in on our streets rebuilding yeah. these this right. this uh you know ga gas transmission the, <laughs> the gas transmission uh infrastructure and those people could be working on building renewables they or, could be, or exactly they could be installing solar panels they could be building green affordable housing um, they could be restoring wetlands they could be building new parks there are so many things that need to be done um, that that could create really dignified and socially necessary jobs which is another kind of point of inspiration from the new deal yeah, one of your arguments is that the green new deal will involve a job guarantee yeah. and and a lot of the critics have seized upon that and said well why do we need to to bring that into this. Uh, right. But you make the case that this is this is kind of essential to. It's essential because so much work needs to be done. And so much of that work um, should be um, directly financed by the public by by the public sector, excuse me, in the same way that the New Deal directly hired people, right? There's no need to get into the sort of nefarious world of public-private slush funds and like subcontracting. The federal government and state governments can directly hire people for socially beneficial work. And it's not um, sort of work that's being invented so in order to pay people a wage. It's work that is extremely necessary. I mean, there are communities now that are in living in areas that are disaster prone, prone to floods and forest fires, and those communities need to be repaired or relocated, and there's just a huge amount of work that needs to be done there. Um, this, as you mentioned before, this this also connects up to the New Deal idea. Exactly. Because, because the New Deal involved a lot of direct government employment. Exactly. Uh, my exactly. father-in-law was, was a member of the Civilian Conservation Corps. Right, and that's uh, one of the programs we talk about. And he yeah. would uh, he would talk about uh, that was a uh, something he was very proud of mm -hmm. his whole life. He he joined the CCC when he was a teenager, right. and he went out and worked uh, uh, building uh, actually were building state parks right. around the country. And we need and, uh, to reclaim our commons and our public space and build more public parks and have them be spaces of of recreation. Um, and of, you know, reacquainting ourselves with nature and wilderness, which also might be inspiring for people to be involved in sort of climate and environmental movements. So they actually serve a lot of purposes. Um, and so we don't think we need to, like, invent jobs to hand out to people. We think that there's a lot of socially necessary work to transform our built environment and also in sectors that are inherently low carbon. So something that we discuss a bit in that chapter are um, jobs such as nursing, childcare, education um, that don't involve producing goods. They just involve human relationships. And not to say that there's no carbon emissions from a hospital, but you know, if we had a hospital that ran on renewable energy, we could imagine reducing a lot of the carbon emissions. And the direct patient doctor or nurse doctor encounter is, is a human relationship. And so the more types of jobs we have that are about caring for people, raising children, you know, caring for the elderly and sick, educating people. Um, the more jobs like that we have, the lower carbon our society is. So we also think, we also consider those to be green jobs and the types of jobs that a federal jobs guarantee should think about investing in. And certainly transportation is a big area where there needs to be a major change. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's not just giving everybody an electric car, but in fact, transforming the entire transportation infrastructure. Right, and, and one of the things that we talk about there, and this is in the last chapter before the conclusion, is that if, if our approach to 
dealing with the climate crisis is just get everyone out of their, you know, gas guzzler and into a Tesla. Um, that's fine. I mean, that that's there. There are some benefits to that. It certainly reduces emissions. Um, but the problem is that Teslas um, or any of the other new, you know, uh, electric vehicle models out there actually do require. Um, a lot of materials mined from the earth in order to build them. So what we focus on in the last chapter is is a is a resource that's gotten some attention in the news recently. Which, lithium. Yes, and I and for, and and I've been studying it for for a year now, which is lithium. And it may or may not sound familiar to the listeners, but lithium is in all of our cell phones, all of our laptops, and also in every electric vehicle because lithium is a key and indispensable ingredient of rechargeable batteries. So anything that you can recharge whether it's a car or uh, an you know, electric car or your phone, has lithium in it. Your phone doesn't have a lot of lithium in it. But once you're talking about large batteries for electric vehicles, there's a substantial amount of mined materials in those. And that, there's lithium, there's cobalt, there's nickel, and there's a lot of energy-intensive processes to make them in terms of making steel. Um, so it, we, we actually, instead of kind of just swapping out regular cars for electric vehicles, we might want to think about how can we make transit um, more of a mass public type of system rather than a private system where we all individually own our vehicles. Because not only does that contribute to the forms of residential segregation that I discussed earlier and like the way that we have to drive everywhere instead of living in denser, um, more transit accessible cities, but it also, as I said, requires actually can create a lot of environmental damage to build these vehicles. And so we need to electrify transit. But what we think is better than everyone owning a Tesla is to have, for example, electric buses um, in a mass transit public system that can transport more people at once and make better use of the materials that we inevitably do need to extract from the earth. Once again, that's back to the future, right? I mean, there was a time in this country where there was uh, more more of a public transit grid. Exactly, exactly. Uh, It's been dismantled under pressure from car. And and it was consciously dismantled uh, at the behest of the fossil fuel industry, basically. Exactly, exactly. LA is a tragic case of that, though, they're actually now doing a lot to rebuild their transit system, fortunately, but they used to have a great trolley system, and car manufacturers and oil companies lobbied that out of existence, and it was actually dismantled. It was all over the country. Right. I mean, my parents uh, would talk about taking what they called the interurban back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, which were uh, essentially electric trains uh, that would transport people to to nearby cities. And... Uh, and they, th- th- that was a common way of traveling. Right, right. And those, of course, by the time you know, I was growing up in the 50s had been demolished. Right, right. So yeah, rebuilding public transit, again, something that's great for the environment, also great for social relations in terms of bringing people into contact with one another and breaking down barriers of segregation also creates a lot of jobs, right? Because it's, it's, it's a lot of work, both the building of the system and the, the conducting and driving of, of it. Uh, so, and lithium also, in that chapter where you talk about lithium, you also look at the sort of international side of this, right. that, that we think about the Green New Deal, of, you know, for this is a, an American project, but, right. but actually it has to be a global project, right? Right. So, you know, there, there's this kind of, um, um, this, this difficulty with climate policy, which is that climate is inherently a planetary condition, meaning it is something that is global in scale. We all, you know, live on the planet and the climate affects all of us. But there aren't clear avenues to policymaking on the international level. So there are, of course, these different climate and environmental agreements over many, you know, over the past many years, and most recently the Paris Accord, um, which the U.S. is pulling out of. Um, But those policies, the Paris Accord included, are just really not stringent enough. I mean, they rely on voluntary enforcement. They they have a lot of wiggle room. Um, they do not put us on a path to a safe climate. Um, in addition to the fact that you know, once someone like Trump comes to power in a given country, they can just leave the accord, right? So that kind of type of climate politics, that highly technocratic sort of closed door negotiations between powerful countries, is not our view of how to actually um, have a globally just 
um, um, set of climate policies. And so we tackle this in a few different ways that are in contrast to the kind of Paris Accord approach. First of all, we say that one of the main impediments to climate justice in the world is the United States. Just historically, the United States has been, you know, under Obama, under Trump, under any president, has been very recalcitrant um, uh, to in terms of, of emission, agreeing to emission stringent emission standards. So one thing that the Green New Deal would do automatically is actually situate the U.S. as a climate leader instead of a climate, you know, denier or someone or a country that does not has no interest in in reducing its emissions. So we would automatically change the kind of bargaining and negotiating scene by the U.S. agreeing to its own aggressive, inter, you know, domestic ag domestically aggressive decarbonization. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing that that we talk about is thinking about other venues that aren't again these sort of closed door negotiations that are kind of happen far away and that social movements and unions and other civil society actors don't have a lot of influence over and instead thinking about you know where else can we generate uh, a globally just set of climate policies and one of the things that we talk about is trade trade is is a key way that the u.s connects to the global economy and connects to other national economies and Trade deals as they are written, whether we're talking about, you know, NAFTA um, or TPP or any of these trade deals um, uh, that what, you know, some of which have been are being reformed like NAFTA. But anyhow, none of them take climate seriously and none of them take the other aspects of the Green New Deal seriously in terms of labor, environmental standards, um, actually lifting people out of poverty and 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 not kind of reinforcing this race to the bottom type of um, uh, so um, type of dynamic. So we see trade policy as a key set of tools to instead of as I said, like enforcing this race to the bottom where countries are competing over who can offer the cheapest labor or lower their environmental standards the most. Um, we think of trade as a way to actually bring countries together through shared agreements over labor and environmental standards, exactly the types of policies that the Green New Deal promotes. And also thinking about, you know, how can we limit really carbon intensive trade and actually building carbon emissions into the types of enforcement mechanisms that that the uh, that that a trade policy might contain. So trade is one thing. And then we also talk about, you know, other forms of of transnational climate politics where movements can ally with one another and put kind of coordinated and simultaneous pressure on governments and corporations. So thinking about um, climate policy is something that's not just for the experts, but something that movements across borders can be involved in. And we wrote this before the climate strike. Like we didn't actually know that there was going to be the degree of transnational and even global coordination of social movements that's happened since we wrote the book. So we're actually even more hopeful about that now. But we think that a combination of a left progressive vision of trade um, that that creates different types of relationships between countries um, um, that lifts up labor and environmental standards rather than dismantling them, combined with coordinated social movements across borders, is a way to actually change kind of the global politics of climate. And we have a lot more hope in those types of mechanisms than we do in these elite kind of discussions around the Paris Accords. Okay, so one of the things I admired about your book is that it, it has a vision, a positive vision of the future. Uh, you might want to attach even the word utopian to it. I, I think utopian visions are, in fact, very constructive, mm -hmm. that we need to think in utopian ways if we're going to improve society. And I was very much impressed with the, the way your last chapter begins, your, your concluding chapter, sketching out in a couple of pages what this new world that could be created uh, looks like, and, and, it, and it sounds very nice. Uh, but uh, the other, the, 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 the attack that utopians always hear is that these things are just utopian. Right. How do we get there? What's the, what's the, the uh, practical politics that are, in fact, going to be able to bring about uh, a Green New Deal? Right. Well, I think what, what we would say to that um, question, which is which is a good one, um, is that there's actually a close relationship between utopian visions and practical politics in the sense that without an understanding um, and, and a vision and a, and a commitment to the world that we are fighting for, the world that we want to create, it's unclear how people will be motivated to fight for it, right? And so I think that 
I'm not saying that, you know, the only thing that guides social movements is a vision of a better future, but it certainly is one thing that guides them. Another thing that guides them is um, intense and righteous grievances with the status quo, right? So there's in any social movement a mix of negative um, uh, critical feelings about the present and whatever you think the problem is that you're protesting against or being involved in politics around, um, combined with some sense that the world could be different. And I think, like, the more concrete, the more evocative, the more tangible the sense of another type of world is, uh, the more inspiring it is to fight for it. And so we don't see like practical politics and political strategy and the sort of nitty gritty of political mobilization and policymaking as something that's opposed to or in contrast to kind of creative visions about the world that we want. We think we're not going to get the kind of political momentum we need, which is going to involve mass civil resistance um, and, um, and social mobilization. Um, we're not going to get the policies we need unless there is some vision of the future that we want. Um, and so we, th we think it's actually, we kind of try to reframe the whole idea of pragmatism. Like we think it is pragmatic um, to actually make bold demands and have um, a clear vision. And, and I'll tell you who agrees with me, the entire right wing. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, like there are many reasons that the neoliberal kind of right wing or GOP has been in many ways, unfortunately, from my perspective, very politically successful over the past 30 years. There's a lot of reasons for their success. But I think one of many reasons is that they had a clear sense of what they wanted. They wanted to dismantle regulation. They wanted to privatize things. They wanted to cut taxes for the wealthy. Yeah, small government in some ways, and maybe big government when we're talking about mass incarceration. But get, you know, lots get of government out of your life. Exactly. You know, you know whatever their right. vision is, right? And so I think that you know there there's there's a variety of of, of forms of neoliberalism and of right and right wing and conservative politics, but they certainly know what they're after. And they certainly do not shy away from bold demands. I mean, if you told someone in the 1960s that in a few decades, um, key elements of the New Deal and Great Society legacies would be um, uh, dismantled, tarnished, not completely, of course, we have Social Security, we have many things that, that, that remain, but we have some things that do not remain or have been gutted, right? If you told someone in the 60s that, they'd say, that's crazy. Like, people love these programs and federal investments. Like, who would agree to that? Well, it turns well, the, out... The decimation of labor unions. Well, I mean, right, right, exactly. Right, and that's such a great example, right? So, In fact, there's still carryover. There's a lot of people who still think that there are powerful labor unions out right, there, right. and they are, there aren't. Right, and you know? so, you know, it turns out that, you know, if you have a vision of the society you want, if you make bold and seemingly radical demands, if you put a lot of policy work into, like, you know, crafting those policies and disseminating them to your political allies, and you also throw a lot of money behind it, which is something that the left doesn't have, which I'll get to in a moment, but if you do all of those things, you can transform politics in quite radical ways. So we take some things from that playbook, but knowing that we don't have money on our side, we don't either have literal kind of financing, but also we don't have like the moneyed classes on our side. We have something else, which is people power, right? So in, so we're, you know, some of the things we can think about what the right did and how they were successful, and some of them might apply to what we want to do, but some of them won't because we also need the power of popular protest on our side. So, um, but, but the idea that making bold demands and having bold visions is not the way that you win politically is to me just some people in the liberal establishment like not understanding how politics works because what I see is that the right wing has precisely been powerful by being radically right wing. That's right. And, and especially if you're, you're, you're appealing to the young. Yeah. Uh, young people want to think about their futures as, as pleasant, as exactly. attractive. Exactly. It doesn't and, feel that way now. And, and I think there's a lot of young people now who, who don't think a lot that way about their futures. Right. And, and you need some, some way of presenting that that vision. Yeah, uh, and youth are, are such big supporters of the Green New Deal and specifically are, are supporters of, of, of its key elements in terms of they, they, want a, they want government action, and specifically government action to deal with the climate crisis. And they also want government action to reinvest in their lives. They want, you know, to be able to go to college and, and live in affordable homes and do this without going into tremendous debt. I, I just had a student in my office um, an hour ago that was telling me that she's going to be 160. 
$50,000 in debt when she graduates. I mean, I, I just can't even, you know, I just recently paid off my student debt from college and I'm 35, right? So it, the point is that, that youth are entering a world that is uncertain, is tumultuous, is um, racked by climate change um, and, and not great economic prospects. And I think they are definitely ready for a vision of kind of concerted public action to address these crises, and they will support that according to all the polls that I have seen. Yeah, and I think this, what you labeled earlier, this sort of radical approach is precisely something that can inspire. Uh, nobody's going to get inspired by a carbon tax no. or a cap and trade or no. anything like that, uh, but they can be inspired by a, a vision of a world in which uh, there is uh, uh, public transit readily available and and homes that are comfortable and affordable and right. and jobs that uh, pay well and, right. and the like so right. uh, uh, I think there's a there's a kind of brilliance in this this approach uh, and uh, and anyway we'll 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 see what happens so for our listeners I strongly recommend a planet to win why we need a green new deal by Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Aldana Cohen, and Theo Rio Francos. It's an excellent uh, little book. It's only a couple of hundred pages, but in uh, very concise and uh, inspiring prose, uh, it'll tell you what the Green New Deal uh, can offer. So Thea, thanks so much for being with us uh, today and and explaining these things. Uh, we'll uh, we have to have you back uh, next semester to talk about Latin American politics. Yes, sure. Uh, there's a lot of things going on so in much. Latin America that uh, we need to go, go into in a, in a podcast. Um, uh, much of that also involves uh, political mobilization and Absolutely. is connected Absolutely. with the things we've been talking about. But anyway, uh, thanks for coming in, uh, with us today and enlightening us about what the Green New Deal is about. Thank you for having me. And thanks again to Beyond Your News Feeds production assistant, Reagan Wynn, uh, class of 2020, who's uh, handling all the technology here today. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, the vice president for marketing and communications uh, at Providence College and his staff for their support. And many thanks to our listeners. Uh, please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed. Uh, just a preview, this is going to be our last podcast for 2019, uh, but we'll be back uh, once school resumes in January 2020 uh, with a number of podcasts. Uh, several things are on our agenda. Uh, we'll probably have a podcast on Brexit. There's an election coming up just next week in Britain. Uh, we need to have a discussion of what's been going on there. Uh, we, of course, need uh, some more discussion of the impeachment process which will be much further along in a couple of months. And then also we haven't really gotten into the 2020 Democratic primary yet. So that will be on our agenda uh, as the new year uh, comes uh, in, in a month or so. Uh, so thanks again for listening. <laughs>